Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 98 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Doug Dorst, author of the novel Alive in Necropolis and the short story collection The Surf Guru. His latest book, S, was written in collaboration with J.J. Abrams, director of the recent Star Trek films, as well as the upcoming Star Wars sequels. S is a very unusual book. When you open the slipcase, you're presented with a surreal political novel entitled Ship of Theseus, written by V.M. Straka. But the real story unfolds in the margins of that text, as two modern-day college students scribble notes back and forth, in an attempt to unravel the author's true identity. Then stick around after the interview as guest geeks Juno Diaz and Tobias Bakel join us for a freewheeling discussion of science fiction books and movies. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Doug Dorst. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. All right, so this new book, S, was written in collaboration with J.J. Abrams. You want to just say how that came about? Uh, well, JJ had had this idea to do a book, uh, that, that worked in a certain way. So that, that there would be a novel that unfolds within the margins of, of another novel. And, uh, uh, Lindsay Weber, who's head of features at Bad Robot, which is JJ's production company. Uh, he asked her if she knew of any writers who might, you know, be a good fit for a project like that. And, and she had read my first book. Uh, so she passed it along to him and, and then I got a call out of the blue from my agent saying, you know, would you conceivably want to work with J.J. Abrams <laughs> on a project? And, um, you know, and of course I said, no, how dare you insult <laughs> me with such an offer? Um, but no, I mean, that, and that's really how it all got started. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you said that you had to sort of um, pitch them or sort of explain what you would do with the story. And I thought it was interesting. You said that one thing that appealed to J.J. about your pitch is that you didn't, you weren't, you had your own ideas and you weren't just giving him what you thought that he wanted to see. Could you elaborate on what you meant by that? Like, what do you think he wanted to see? Uh, I think he wanted to see someone just pick up on an insane idea and take it to an even more insane place, as opposed to maybe just doing something that felt safe and formulaic. Um, And part of it was simply that I thought I was certain that I was auditioning for the gig, Uh, you know, probably competing against 20 other writers. And so I thought, well, there's no way I'll get it. So I might as well, you know, propose this project that it's, that is absolutely over the top and built for maximum fun. Um, so maybe that, maybe that worked in my favor. Uh, so uh, what, what sort of insanity did you bring to the project? Uh, the, essentially that of the endless world, which is, you know, so we've got this interior novel called Ship of Theseus by this mysterious writer that, that our two present day readers are commenting on. And, uh, the novel itself is an odd creature that you could probably, it's designed so that you could talk about it endlessly if you were interested in it, uh, in part because of its connection to the mysterious writer. But even if the novel weren't offering a great many hints about the mysterious writer, um, the mysterious writer's backstory could conceivably go on forever. Nobody knows who he or she was. Um, and there are all these possible candidates and there are all these possible stories. And I guess I thought too, it's, well, this is interesting to me. Um, authorship controversies and a sort of eggheaded academic 
uh, or one of the characters is an academic. And, uh, I thought, you know, I don't know how people in the real world will react to that. Mm. Uh, I'm not an academic, but I play one, uh, three days a week. Mm. Well, yeah. Speaking of the authorship controversies, when you talk about, you, you said that you're interested in sort of the Shakespeare author controversy, what sort of, um, just talk a little bit about your interest in that. Oh, I mean, it's not, it's not like a, a deep and durable interest. It's, it's, that's, I was reading a book at the, at the time this all started up. I was reading a book called Contested Will. Uh, and it's all about, you know, there, there is, um, there are various factions who insist that no, the man, William Shakespeare, did not write the things that we attribute to the author, to the playwright Shakespeare. Um, and and so there are all these other theories, um, you know, that it was the Earl of Oxford or Queen Elizabeth herself or, you know, and some of them are silly and some of them like the Oxford. There are very serious people who believe it deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, some people don't believe Shakespeare did it because he was a provincial guy who became an actor and he could not have had access to, you know, all of the all the sort of like nuanced intrigue of of court life of, of royalty and, um, which I, I don't know, I guess I kind of took as a little bit of an affront because personally I'm a writer. I want to be able to do whatever I want. And I, you know, have to have the hubris of believing I can do it plausibly. Right. Exactly. Um, And and in this case you have to become VM Straka, right? Yeah. Could you talk about how is Straka's writing different from yours? And how do you make it make this book seem like it's um, out of the 1940s and stuff like that? Uh, it, it wasn't particularly calculated. Um, I knew I had to write not like myself as much as possible, which is kind of freeing. You know, yeah. it's not simply writing anonymously. I'm writing explicitly as someone who is not me. Uh, because Straka's name had a sort of Central European feel to me. Uh, and I knew roughly the time period that, uh, that I wanted Straka to be writing in. I started with, there's a book called The Sleepwalkers by Hermann Brook, who's an Austrian writer. And I think that's from 39. But I actually didn't go back and read it. I just relied on my vague memory of what it sounded like or felt like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I heard one review I saw uh, referred to the book as part Camus, part Kaiser Soze. <laughs> um I would sort of describe it as kind of Kafka meets Lovecraft meets Robert Ludlum or something. There's this kind of, um, you know, the the premise is that there's a, a, a character with amnesia and he gets caught up in all these conspiracies and there's paranormal elements and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that sounds great. <laughs> I mean, um, I love Kafka, I love Camus, and I uh, have read my share of Ludlum. Mm-hmm. Uh I had a really intense Lovecraft period, so it's not surprising to me that some of that would creep in. I mean, one of the things in particular that made me think of Lovecraft is the sort of obscure vocabulary that Straka uses. I just wrote, wrote down some of these words, lepterine, aphotic, quincuxes, revanchist, and cyanotic. Where do those kinds of words come from? Uh, some of them I know, and some of them I just bump into in, in real life somehow. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I guess that's partly Straka, but it's also partly me. I mean, I really dig the music of words sometimes, but yeah, I, I don't know. I suppose I wanted Straka to be someone who would in fact engage with language, um, on that level and, you know, and, and make some really idiosyncratic, uh, because also, well, 
it might be Straka, but it also might be the translator. Uh-huh. Um, so there's a translator editor who appears in the footnotes of the book. And that translator has um, his or her own sensibility. So while I was creating a Straka voice, I had to bear in mind that I was creating this other voice and that the text itself might actually be um, Straka's voice as we're experiencing it might be might have been modified a little mm-hmm. by this other voice. Um, all of which is to say, I guess it felt like everything was in bounds and yeah. I might as well take advantage of it. Um, and if I thought too hard about it, my brain would just tie itself in knots. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you say, there are all these different layers to the story. There's the, the text of the ship of Theseus itself. And then there's the translator is footnoting and maybe they're sending messages to each other, the author and the uh, editor. And then the students are writing on the book and they're sending messages to each other. And there's all these levels of it. Is metafiction something that you're, you have a particular interest in? Are there any other books, anything like this that you ever read or thought about? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I'm very interested in metafictional stuff. Um, I guess I first got turned on to it in college when a professor had us read a bunch of Donald Barthelme's mm-hmm. stuff, which I just was entranced by. Um, and at one point I had a graduate fellowship in which I got to study with Gilbert Sorrentino, who not as many people know him as, uh, as should, because uh, he was incredible and just the master of not just breaking the rules, but tearing them up and throwing them in your face <laughs> and laughing as he did. So, um, so yeah, let me put in a plug for, for Gil's work. Uh, Mulligan stew is this particularly insane beast of a book that is also really funny. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm whether or not they're all sort of metafictional impulses. I'm really interested in, telling stories in odd ways. And one of the short stories in my collection is, uh, it's actually composed. You learn about the character and the character's narrative solely by, uh, via these mini biographies that he's written about all of the peers that he has access to grind with. <laughs> um, so that, and again, there are footnotes and photographs. It's about the plants. Plant yeah. Taxonomy. Yeah. It's a story called Splitters um, about horrible rival, rivalries in the world of botany. <laughs> um, and it might be that that's part of the reason why I got the the gig with JJ is that when I heard the proposal, like all of those circuits lit up the the puzzle part of my mind, you know, the the game playing part of my mind just lit up uh-huh. had they read um your shorts for the surf guru your short story collection or was i don't it just i don't know uh as far as i i mean i know Lindsay read necropolis and that's what what she handed to him i don't know if if the stories were part of that and, and alive in necropolis has sort of police reports yeah um could you talk about that <laughs> yeah just part of it's uh, the main character is a cop uh who is uh, he's working in a town called Colma, which is south of San Francisco. It's a real town, and it was created as a cemetery city, which is, you know, as a place to bury all of San Francisco's dead because they had outlawed. They did outlaw cemeteries in San Francisco because of land values and such. Anyway, so um, it's it's not really a ghost story, but there are dead people walking around causing problems. And... um the the boundary for him between the the world of the living and the world of the dead gets a little blurred 
And I guess I liked that as a conceit, like telling some of the narrative through the police reports that he writes about the incidents that he has to deal with um, that are in this blurry area um, or the area of the not quite real. And then did you read a lot of actual police reports and use those as models? Yeah, I did. Uh, And I had a friend uh, who was a cop at the time and he coached me on, Mm -hmm. on some of um, some of the phrasings or, or really sort of how you have to process events to write them up in this way. Yeah. And I guess we should say with S there's stuff kind of like that in this too, because there's the postcards and the maps drawn on napkins, all these sorts of, um, external to the book things that are mm-hmm. kind of stuffed in the pages of the book. Did you come up with all of those or how did, what was the process for those? Yeah. I mean, um, as I was going, we knew from the beginning that we wanted to be able to do stuff like that with this book. Um, that there would be uh, pieces external to the text that would that would become part of it. Um, as for what they would be, we didn't decide that in the beginning. It was me going along as I wrote, keeping a list for myself um, about okay, what what would be cool. And my list was incredibly long. I sort of decided I wouldn't worry about practicality or even um, sort of bang for buck, uh, and. I was just like, let me, let me put in everything that's, that I think would be cool. Um, and then when, when we got the draft together, you know, finished and turned in, then JJ and Lindsay and, uh, and I, and Josh Kendall, our editor at Mulholland, we, you know, we had conversations about, okay, which, which of these is going to pay off the most, you know, we cannot do 150 of them, (laughs) but, um, if we're going to do 20, which 20 should they be? Um, which was actually fairly easy to do. I mean, it was, it was obvious which 20 were the most important, or 22, I guess, we ended up with. Well, and this is, it's very much, it's a book. You know, it takes advantage of the book form, and it, it really gets a lot of its um, power from the physical form. I mean, I guess there is an e-book version, but I think the primary way you would want to experience this is, is as a physical book. And I just think one thing that really interested me about this this book is that yeah, it, it, it's such an object. And also within the story, it creates this world where books are so important that, um, you know, that Straka is this character with, um, you know, political, he brings down governments and stuff like that. And, you know, people are willing to kill over mm-hmm. this book and the grad students care so much about literature and stuff. It's this really appealing. I think it's like, I was thinking it's almost like this book does for um, English lit what Indiana Jones does for archaeology. <laughs> that would be great. I mean, and and I, I was well aware that I was... I mean, I'm a lit geek, always have been, you know, uh, we'll probably always identify that way. And, you know, and I think that's one of the things that at various points I might, I was worried about. Am I going too far into a lit geek world in a way that's really alienating to other people? Um, and that was another place where it was, it was great to be working with JJ and Lindsay and having people saying, no, no, this, it's interesting, run with it. Um, and if it's taking you to, strange places by all means, you know, if it's working, it's working. And I mean, the, um, the voices of, uh, of the students, uh, Jen and Eric are so believable and also believe, very believable to me was the sort of academic rancor <laughs> wrangling and stuff, uh, in the book. And I know maybe it's an awkward question, but are you, since you work at a college, do you, did you draw any on any of the, uh, you know, the students and faculty kind of stuff that you know for, to create this, this world? Not, not really, because I, Eric, who's, who's the grad student, um, 
you know, he's, he's in a PhD program, but actually at the beginning of the book, uh, we find out that he's, he's sort of washed out of his PhD program, uh, sort of, you know, uh, just destroyed his own career in a, in a fairly dramatic <laughs> manner. Um, I've actually never had that experience. I mean, I, yes, I teach at a university. I don't have a PhD and technically I'm not really a lit guy. You know, I have a master of fine arts degree. I'm a creative writing guy. So, um, in a way that that's my, it's the vicarious pleasure of, uh, the P the pursuit of a PhD that I'm drawing on here. And, and I'm idealizing it in some way, like idealizing the pleasure of it and idealizing the horrible backstabbery of it. Mm -hmm. Um, but actually, you know, it might actually, cause I'm aware primarily of feuds in the scientific community. Like that's where the botany story came from. And, and maybe, cause I think I was working on the botany story when I was starting to put this mm -hmm. together. Um, maybe that found its way in that, you know, if, if people can be so territorial and so, um, quick to anger in this field, well, surely that that'll be in this other field. Um, but I, I don't actually know if it <laughs> happens there. I guess we should explain your wife uh, as a uh, plant taxonomist. Yes. So that's, that's where kind it, of some of your interest in that. Yeah. It was me completely appropriating her world. Uh -huh. Um, and I mean, I have an inner science geek and, and so, you know, what I do being a writer allows me to explore that pretty much explore anything I want to. I mean, it's a great job. You get interested in something, you can make it the thing that you do. Um, which, you know, very few jobs in, in the grown up world really allow. Uh, I guess, could you talk a little bit more about what sort of reactions has the book been getting? I thought it was interesting. You said that in an interview that you expected the book to be polarizing. Could you say why, why is that? I, I think because I, I, I still wasn't, uh, and, and maybe continue not to be in some ways just absolutely sure because I did get to indulge like every lit geek, um, impulse that I had. Um, and, and it's a demanding read too. Um, I'm sure that there are going to be people who are put off by it or who, just decide it's not worth their time to engage with it on the level that it demands engagement. Um, maybe polarizing is a little strong. I mean, it's, you know, uh, it's not, uh, staking out. You're not going to have secret societies hunting you down. Yeah. I, th I think it's pretty safe to assume. So polarizing might not have been the right word, <laughs> but I, you know, maybe it translates to, I think some people will really dig it. Uh, and probably some people will be alienated by what it is. Yeah. And are, are you getting a sense from people of how they're physically reading it? Are they reading, has anyone just <clears> read the ship of Theseus and then gone back and looked at the footnotes? Yeah. Flip back and forth. Or? Several people have. And that's actually, that's what I'm finding out most about is that's what people are want to talk about, or I've, I've been getting emailed questions about, you know, how, how best to read this thing. And, um, you know, and it, it, it seems like there's an entire, there's the complete range of approaches. And yes, some people have read Ship of Theseus all the way through and then gone back to the margin story. Um, and actually the, the, the ebook version facilitates that. It's got a thing that you can toggle, uh, you, you can toggle off the margin notes if you want, which is kind of cool that you can in fact get this clean read of Ship of Theseus. Um, 
And then there are some people who go chapter by chapter, you know, read a chapter, ship of Theseus, then go back. There's some people who are doing it a page or two at a time or even a paragraph at a time. I, I haven't yet heard from anybody who is doing it perfectly simultaneously. Um, I think it all depends on how your brain is wired, like how best you absorb information or how, what engages you the most. Um, I think if I were to try to do it perfectly simultaneously, my brain would explode (laughs) because I'm not wired that way, but Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are people out there who are. Could you talk about the the titles, uh, Ship of Theseus and S, were those things that were given to you or did you? No, Ship of Theseus, um, because I got started thinking about the authorship questions, um, then that got me to thinking about identity. You know, what does it, you know, what does it mean when we say, was Shakespeare Shakespeare? Um, and so ship of Theseus is, it's, it's a thought experiment or it's, uh, it's, it's one of the names for a particular thought experiment, you know, uh, assume you have this ship and, you know, a part breaks, a part of it breaks and you repair it and so on and so on and so on until you've replaced everything. There's not one original bit of anything that's composing that ship at that point. Is it still the same ship? Which, you know, is an interesting question, and people have been wondering about it for millennia, probably. Um, there are many names for that, for that thought experiment, and Ship of Theseus I thought was the most interesting. And because especially, like, taken literally, it gives you, okay, a ship. I'm looking for places to start with the story. And so, yeah, that's where it started. S, S was not... There, we worked for a long time without a sense of what the larger project would be called. I think, um, in my head, I did not refer to it as S, but, uh, when everyone got together, they, you know, there was this consensus that was probably the best thing to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you mentioned that you, uh, enjoyed Lovecraft and I saw that you, you said that Stephen King's The Shining was one of the first books that really, you know, captured your imagination. Uh, I mean, this is largely a podcast for fantasy and science fiction fans. So I was just wondering, are you a fantasy and science fiction fan yourself? Do you read much? Uh... And, you know, I haven't lately. Uh, and that's in part because, you know, I teach in an MFA program and yes, you can, there are plenty of people who teach in MFA programs who, you know, do, um, who teach or who incorporate the study of, of various sorts of genre fiction. I haven't ever felt confident enough to do it. Uh, I think in part because even if I were reading more, I would not be expert in it. And I feel like I should be expert in the stuff that I'm trying to teach. And then having, you know, feeling that way, um, my time is fairly limited, you know, uh, if, because I'm trying to write and teach and, uh, and I've got a kid now. And so in a way I've gotten tracked into reading generally more straightforward literary fiction. Although I, I want to acknowledge that it's not like I think there's a firm boundary between them. And I, I think most people who do think that are either lying to themselves or missing something fundamental. Mm-hmm. Well, it's certainly alive in Necropolis has, supernatural ghosts and stuff and do any of the short stories in surf guru have any sort of uh, paranormal fantastical elements that's a good question i don't there are strangenesses Uh um there are surreal moments but i don't think i don't think there's any you know quote genre stuff going on i mean even necropolis i i didn't necessarily think of it as a genre work or as a walled off from genre literary work it was more like here's a story i want to tell 
I'm going to try to tell it as best I can and pay attention to language and, and depth of character. Um, and also have dead people running around, uh, uh-huh. causing trouble. Uh, and certainly, and certainly in the ship of Theseus, there are fantastical elements as well, I guess. Yeah. Um, with the, with the time and so on. Could you talk about, um, yeah, just some of those and what you, how much, you, how far you wanted to go with that and stuff like that? Um, it was, I mean, that was all improvised, you know? So, uh, at some point I realized, oh wait, you know, time is going to be a tricky thing here. Okay. Here's the rule for how time will work. Great. Uh-huh. You know, and, and so again, not, not, not really worrying so much of is, wait, is this within the ground rules of the book? Can I do this? Or does it become a different kind of book if I start messing with time in that way? Um, it was really kind of a, a gut decision that got me there. And, uh, and the thought of, well, what the hell? The story seems to want it that way. So let's see what happens. Sure. How about the, the characters who stitch their mouth? There's this crew of people who stitch their mouths shut. Um, can you talk a little bit about where, where that image come from? Or Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I know there are examples of that image having appeared before, I guess, in film and, and apparently in other books. Um, so that must have been in the back of my head. I, I can't say for sure. But I knew I wanted S, the character, to be shanghaied onto this very strange ship that was that would be a hostile, unpleasant place to be. But it seemed like um, silence would be the best part of that hostility. Like to have it be just this really hard to define, but intensely uncomfortable place to be. So I thought, okay, well, yeah, the crew will not speak to him. It'll be ship a, a completely silent ship. Um, and then I thought, well, they need to have a good reason. I mean, there has to be like <laughs> something interesting about their silence. I was like, all right, well, let me stitch their mouths shut. That makes me feel creepy. So why not give it a shot? Uh-huh. I wasn't really expecting anything like the image that, uh, that concludes the first trailer that bad robot made. Um, you know, because it's this like figure walking up to the camera and you actually see this, you know, this sort of disturbing face that's all sewn up. And I, I mean, that freaked me out. <laughs> I was like, I wrote the damn thing and this is going to give me nightmares. Uh, well, what, yeah. Why don't you talk a little bit about the, the trailer and sort of some of the advantages that come from having this movie, uh, movie production company associated with the project? Well, it's fantastic. I mean, they can generate and, and did generate, you know, like all kinds of attention for the thing that, you know, generally books don't get. Um, Unless it's a book that's, you know, an anticipated release from someone who, you know, it's like, yeah, okay, George R.R. R. Martin, Stephen King, like people know the next book is coming and they're stoked about it. I'm not those guys. So, you know, how wonderful to have access to this group of people who are, you know, behind the project and really trying to generate interest in it. Um, there are a lot of pieces to S that are not in the book itself and are not in the physical objects that are tucked into the book. There, there's a lot of stuff floating around out there. Uh, some of which hasn't been discovered yet. Um, is this like radio Straka, like stuff online you're talking about? Or? Yeah. Um, there, I, I guess I don't want to say too much about it yeah. because I, I, I want people to, I think the whole idea is for people to discover sure, it sure. as opposed to me to say, go, go here, <laughs> click on this. Yeah, yeah. Um, but actually Radio Straka was, um, it was the, the UK publisher Canongate who put it together and, uh, you know, just as a way of generating interest. But they, so they did these five hours of, of, you know, ostensibly pirate radio broadcasts of a guy, 
um, who is maybe a slightly unhinged Straka enthusiast and conspiracy theorist, um, kind of riffing on things on the Straka world and on things possibly tangentially connected to it. And it's like this uneasy blend of what is real and what isn't, um, with a lot of awesome music in there. Like the production is really fun. And I didn't write the scripts for it. I, I, I really had nothing to do with it other than like smiling and saying, hell yes, that sounds <laughs> great. And, and they really, it worked because I think they totally got it, but also ran with it in their own direction, which, which frankly only makes the Straka world bigger and more interesting. I did want to ask you, you know, in addition to being a writer, you're also a three-time Jeopardy champion. Uh, <clears throat> yes. Uh, I was just curious, you know, I watched Jeopardy and I always watch it. I'm like, oh, I would do pretty good, I think. But then I think, well, if I got on there, there'd be so much pressure. Would I just totally, you know, not do as well as I do at home? Uh, could you talk about like, what was your experience with that? Yeah. I mean, um, the thing is you might do better yeah. and, or, and I think this is more my experience. You might do better for five minutes and then totally lose your mojo uh -huh. and then get really flustered because then you realize, oh my God, I'm on TV. People are watching this. Um, and then maybe you get your mojo back. And that's, that's one of the things that's most interesting to me. Like if, I, when I watch Jeopardy now, you can totally see when people are in the groove and are, are no longer aware that they're being watched in any way. They're just like, in that com that purely wonderfully competitive place where nothing else matters. And then you can see people, you know, starting to lose it and you can see people completely losing it. And then of course the question is, okay, are you going to be able to gather yourself enough to get back to that place? Um, and actually I, I was on the tournament of champions. I only, I played one game and, and just got my clock cleaned. Uh, but that's where, like I could tell I didn't have the buzzer timing down. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I did for a minute at the beginning, but then totally lost it. And, and I remember like, I got, got like, <laughs> it was like really fighting the button. And of course, once you're fighting the button, it's all over. Uh -huh. And I mean, I think, um, with most of the questions, uh, I would say like with three quarters of the questions, all three people know the answer. Mm -hmm. So it's about who's in the groove. There was this guy, I saw he had made this app, and it would test you on, it would sort of test you and see what categories you were weak on, and then test you with previous Jeopardy questions in those categories. Oh. And he won like eight, nine, eight or nine times in a row or something. It sounded like, I, I guess the same sort, you know, the Bible and Shakespeare kind of right. questions come up over and over again. So Yeah, but I was doing said, it analog, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that's a, that's a great idea. I wish. I, so I was on in early 06, and, you know, so there was some online stuff going on. There were, you know fan and contestant boards where things would be discussed and like the sort of the theory of final jeopardy wagering. Um, but I was only on the fringes of that at best. And obviously I'm sure there's a whole lot more going on. Like, like that example. Uh -huh. Was, uh, alive necropolis is the one novel that you've published, right? Right. Do you have any other, th any others that you've written or. No, I, I mean, I've been pretty lucky in that I haven't had to, put away the unpublished novel and, and just, you know, say it's a loss. Um, cause that, I mean, that's a tough thing to do. I have many friends who've done it and you realize, okay, that's two years of my life and all it's ever going to do is sit in a drawer. That said, Necropolis took me forever to write. Uh, um, it was like eight years. It was like eight yeah, years. Yeah. yeah. So in a way, you know, maybe I had like three <laughs> manuscripts in the drawer. 
Right. I mean, did you feel like it was a big leap of faith on the part of Bad Robot and, and just for yourself that you'd written one novel before that had taken eight years and they're giving you this? Oh, yeah, completely. It was absolutely insane for them to trust me with it. <laughs> um, and it was absolutely insane for me to to feign that kind of competence. Um, and also, too, it's like, OK, you know, they work in the world of film and TV uh, in which, you know, if you have a screenwriter who says, I need to make it up as I go along you do not hire that screenwriter, you know, with film and TV scripts. Generally, you got to have every beat planned out. And then the act before you get a line of dialogue out there, and it's really in some ways like a, a more mechanical process. And, um, I was worried that they were going to be made uneasy by the fact that I have difficulty, um, creating structure and abiding by structure. It would be great if I could do it. I would probably be well served by it, but I'm not at all wired that way. Um, but they went with it. I mean, I think, you know, whether or not they said it out loud, I think they understood, okay, the novel is a different thing from TV and film scripts. And it also might be that this guy is a writer who approaches the novel in this way, which is not that. Um, but I never got anything from them that wasn't you know, follow the story where it takes you, do what you need to do, do it your way, um, which you know, is, is ideal. All right, great. So we're almost all out of time here, but I guess just before I let you go, well, what do you, what's next for you? You have another book you're working on or stories? Or? I've got some stuff that I laid aside um, when this opportunity came up, um, a few stories and a thing that might grow or have grown into a novel, although my gut tells me it's more of a novella. Um, you know, once the semester ends, I'll have a bit more time to, to go back and, you know, figure out what has life still yeah. for me and pursue it. As I've been going along with this, I've, I've had a notebook going of, uh, for ideas for another novel, although it, it looks like it's going to be a big sprawling thing. And I, I actually kind of need to sit down and make sure that that would be the right choice mm -hmm. because this is, you know, a big sprawling, insane thing. It doesn't, make any kind of sense to jump into that mm -hmm. it might actually it might be insane to do that i might choose to do it anyway um and i'm i'm kicking around some uh some tv ideas you know i don't know uh it's uh actually going to be kind of fun to get back and feel like okay what is going to snag my attention and demand my effort um now because I mean, this project I was I was writing up until midnight the night before the book came out. Uh, so I'm still in that position of like kind of gathering myself and looking around. It's like, oh, where am I now? Um, but it's going to be fun to get back to that. All right, great. All right, so I think we're going to have to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Doug Dorst. The new book is called S. So Doug, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks a lot. It's fun. And that was our interview. So thanks again to Doug Dorst for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned, for our panel today, we'll be joined by two guest geeks. So first up, we've got Juno Diaz. He was born in the Dominican Republic and raised in New Jersey. And his books Drown, The Brief, Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow, and This Is How You Lose Her, are full of obscure science fiction and comic book references. He's also been the recipient of numerous awards, including a recent MacArthur Genius Fellowship, and he teaches writing at MIT, as well as serving as fiction editor at Boston Review. So, Juno, welcome to the show. Thank you, man. And also joining us today is Tobias Bacal, making his fifth appearance on the show. 
He was born in the Caribbean and moved to Ohio as a teenager, where he lives today. He's the author of the Xenowealth series of space adventure novels, as well as the New York Times bestselling Halo novel The Cole Protocol and the near-future eco-thriller Arctic Rising. So, Toby, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on again. All right, and so how this panel came about is that we interviewed Juno back in episode 70, and we really wanted to talk more to him than just the, the interview gave us a chance to. And so we've been trying to get him back on the show uh, all year now, and we finally have the chance, so we're very excited. And in that interview, he mentioned that he's a fan of Toby's writing, and Toby's a good friend of ours, so we figured, why not bring him in as well, and we could just all talk and have a more sort of unstructured, just conversational uh, discussion. But so, Juno, first of all, do you just want to tell us a little bit about what you've been up to since we last talked to you? Um, you were working on uh, a book called Monstro, and we know from trying to schedule this with you that you're incredibly busy. Have you had any time to work on that at all? Not a chance. I mean, it, it doesn't. It, it look. I'm incredibly fortunate to have a, a book tour uh, for my paperback this fall. But you know, I'm also teaching, and I'm incredibly fortunate to have a teaching job. But it all adds up to not getting much time to do anything. And throw on top of that that I'm an incredibly slow writer. And you've got the perfect storm of swaps. Uh huh. Uh, actually, a couple episodes back, the last time Toby was on the show, uh, the topic we talked about was politics and science fiction. And, you know, we, we talked about sort of growing up reading authors like Heinlein and at what age we became aware of their political slant. And I know you're really interested in politics. So I was just wondering what your experience was like growing up reading science fiction authors. And when did you start noticing their politics or did you get interested in politics, stuff like that? Yeah, I came from kind of a, a highly politicized universe in a way. Uh, I was coming out of a post-dictatorship society in the Dominican Republic, um, and there was a lot of contestation uh, around the dictatorship, um, whether it had been good, whether it had been bad. A lot of civic and political groups organized, and it kind of came out of this, you know, this climate. And so it was always in the air. It was really formed part of our vernacular, even though, you know, we were kind of a real humble immigrant family. Um, those vibrations were almost everywhere. When I started reading science fiction, started reading fantasy, and started reading horror, I think I was uh, slightly more attuned to it than perhaps I would have been had it not been for my crazy-ass family. <laughs> but certainly by the time I was in high school and I was getting exposed to a lot of the different sort of political um, historical streams in U.S. culture uh, in an organized way, I think it began to dawn on me what in the world Starship Troopers was about um, or, you know, a Stranger in a Strange Land or sort of what were some of the arguments that uh, Alfred Bester was sort of involved in. And, yeah, I think the high school was when the thing started to be not clear. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, you mentioned that you grew up in the Dominican Republic, and it's interesting both you and Toby have said that coming to the United States was almost a science fictional experience. And um, Toby was telling me about how, you know, he grew up in an island where you could basically walk from one end to the other and coming to this place where there were interstate highways and all these things was, was like coming, it was like a, come, stepping into a science fiction movie. And I was wondering if maybe you guys could just compare notes because you both had that experience of coming to the U.S. seeming like science fiction. Do you think you had pretty much pretty similar experiences or were they different in any ways? Well, I mean, uh, Toby, I don't know about you. because. We're in that situation where we don't have exactly each other's experiences. I'm not sure we're, mm -hmm. we're, you know, we know exactly where they're consonant, but certainly 
one could begin with the fact that the colossal material privilege of the United States vis-a-vis the rest of the Caribbean in general can be a real shock going from a almost completely unelectrified home and an electrified neighborhood in the 70s to John F. Kennedy Airport at like 11 p.m. flying over New York City um, and seeing those galaxies of light spread out before you. That, I think, sort of cracked my brain open and made me vulnerable, certainly to the narrative of science fiction and, you know, genre. I, re- I remember the first time I flew over the States when I was coming up to visit it. I remember thinking, like, this is Trantor, like, from Isaac Asimov's foundation. And just looking down and seeing lights spreading as far as you could see. Uh, it was it was that moment where uh, actually a lot of science fiction became very demystified for me. I, I call it a very science fictional experience, but it also sort of demystified the literature for me. Because a lot of the stuff that I thought was very extremely gosh wow and amazing about science fiction growing up turned out to be sort of extrapolations of an existing environment uh the people who really spoke to me in terms of making it feel science fictional were the cyberpunks because i I really latched onto them during that phase where i was moving from the caribbean up to the u.s because the quote that gibson had and that a lot of the cyberpunks tried to sort of spread on the ground of the future is already here it's just unevenly distributed you know, when I grew up in Grenada, I was there till I was nine, and it, it's much more rural. It sort of has a GDP of like, you know, four or five thousand a year, I think. And it was uh, in the 80s after, after the war while it was rebuilding from the intervention in 84. And then I moved from there up to the northern part of the Caribbean to St. Thomas. So I kind of moved a little bit further up in terms of GDP and material wealth and you know, seeing people with computers and, and just more more stuff. And then by the time I moved to the States, it felt like my entire life had been sort of this sort of cyberpunk exploration of like the unevenly distributed futures that existed within the world. Uh-huh. I mean, Juno, did you have any of that experience of the demystification that Toby was talking about? Well, I come from it from a completely the reverse angle, where I think that being a, a third world kid coming out of like this sort of, you know, the, the kind of standard material impoverishment, the kind of third world space I came out of, um, sort of guaranteed that it would be in the opposite order. And so what happens to me is that like I get to the U.S. and I'm sort of plunged into what would be called realism. I'm plunged into this universe where Sort of all the things that I had witnessed as a kid growing up, there wasn't any place in sort of a realistic narrative to fully capture it. You know, like how does one explain to somebody in New Jersey what growing up in Santo Domingo in the 70s was like? You know, what does one, how does one explain to sort of middle class suburban kids what the structural feel, the structure of feeling that is produced by an incredibly repressive regime, like a dictatorship, how that kind of lasts and lingers. And then I began to encounter science fiction, and science fiction is where we, I think as societies and as individuals, where we kind of encounter, we sort of work through, we try to theorize on the kinds of experiences that we don't often like to think about, work through, or theorize in sort of our everyday discourse, like 
you know, you bring up slavery to people and the aftermath of slavery, and folks immediately, at least in the United States and the Dominican Republic, have a lot of defenses around it. They have a lot of like, you know, they don't want to look there, they don't want to think about it. But, you know, you can express this in a different science fictional format, and suddenly people are along for the ride. I mean, God, man, how many science fiction books do you have? The breeding of communities and the breeding of people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yet, yet the reason this actually has any resonance, the reason that this speaks to anybody or it even works, because in the back of our head, even if it's disavowed and not acknowledged, we sort of already know that we've done this, that this is not, you know, a complete, fantastic, mythic, you know, let's just click our heroes and sales and pretend. And I think that what I discovered was that in my mind, you know, science fiction became the, the language that I found best allowed me to unlock what I had lived. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, you mentioned this this massive wealth disparity between the first world and the third world. And one science fiction movie recently that dealt with that very explicitly was Elysium. And I saw on Facebook that you linked to it. You said you, you uh, quoted from this io9 article that said that the movie has none of the depth or complexity of District 9, but there are cyborgs punching each other in space. And you say that's usually good enough for me. So I was just wondering, yeah. did, did you see the movie ultimately? And was that good enough for you? Yeah, I mean, that's usually enough to get me in the damn theater, you know? I mean, I got to say, I'm I'm really highly vulnerable to to a wide range of nonsense, you know? I think mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a sucker for this stuff, you know? Um, but afterwards, uh, you know, my youthful enthusiasm that gets me to the movies is not the, the what ends up at the end. And, I, you know, it was one of those movies where, again, it, I, I kind of got finished with the movie and I looked at a friend of mine and I'm like, yo, why don't they put locks on those healing beds? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I just, I guess, I guess what I was thinking about from that movie, which was that it would they would have been best served if they'd actually gotten some people who had been immigrants to be sort of uh, consulting advisors, you know? <laughs> because I think that they were dealing with a lot of the issues in a really abstract sort of, it's sort of like listening to people who know nothing about a science talk about a science. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I felt that that was, you know, the movie was interesting. It had some interesting ideas, but I felt that when it, it got it's such an old familiar trope to me, like from Metropolis on up, that I kind of wanted something a little bit more. I don't know. I just, I guess I think that the reality of what well, we, the reality that it was trying to touch on is more interesting and complex and insane than the movie, which is unfortunate because if you've got, you know, if you've got science fiction apparatuses at your disposal, you've got to do something extra. Yeah, I agree that a lot of the stuff in Elysium really just seemed to lack a convincing level of complexity, especially with the ending, I thought. But, um, uh, Toby, what did you think of Elysium? Uh, I haven't seen Elysium yet. I've just seen the uh, some stuff around it. It looks like it fe- suffers from the same feature as District 9, which is that there's a very good paragraph idea, but it has not been spun out. The world building doesn't go deep. I felt like the the YouTube commercial, the the three minute version of District Nine that came out years and years ago, had more potential. And the first like ten minutes of District Nine had this incredible amount of potential that was kind of steamrolled by a very bog standard action plot, which kind of disappointed me. And I know some people, of friends of mine, hate when I say it, but I just thought 
for what it looked like it could have been and what I thought it was going to be. I was very much let down after leaving the theater. The other thing, the biggest problem, of course, is I go to the theater to see uh, District 9. And, of course, there are a pair of my students, uh, both of them from Nigeria, who are in watching this movie. And, of course, the only named sort of malign sort of racial caricatures in the movie are the evil Nigerian gangsters. Yeah. And this, this was something else that kind of uh, was immediately apparent in the movie, you know, it was like, and sort of kind of turned my stomach a little bit by that. But I guess, you know, I, guys, I don't know about y'all, but I recently had to see uh, Aliens for a class, the second Aliens movie. And you forget that there used to be a time when people could actually execute a good action movie. <laughs> I think I, I really like Aliens. It's one of my favorites because every everybody in that movie has uh, agency, even the uh, the smaller characters. He's always look. I, I love that statement because it's something we were talking about with the students. Was he never loses track of any of his characters? His characters in every scene are doing something, mm-hmm. and even at the end, spoiler, 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 spoiler. Yeah, <laughs> you heard it. Even at the end, when Bishop gets partitioned, yeah. even Bishop's half-body gets to do something in the mm-hmm. final scene. So yeah, man, that's, that's a movie where you can tell this is a dude who knew how to block his characters and how to, you know, pull it off. And of course, I'm not so sure about Avatar, but that movie stands as like, you know, as a paragon. Yeah, well, I mean, why do you think that's happened, that... I mean, just all, uh, many of the recent movies, like yeah, Avatar or Pacific Rim, the characters just to me felt very uh, Oof, two-dimensional. Pacific Rim. Oof. Did y'all see mm-hmm. Did everybody see Pacific Rim here? Everyone, yeah, I saw it. Tobias, yeah. Tobias saw it, yeah, yeah. Well, what do you think, bro? I want to hear from you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? I'm like, I'm like one of the few people I know who's sort of like neutral about it. I mean, for one thing, is like I was, I remember seeing robot jocks on like my tiny little TV uh, with the generator running outside of on the boat and loving the big action robots beating the crap out of each other. And so I was excited to go see it because basically the sum total of my expectations were that I wanted to see two giant robots or a robot fight a robot or a robot fight a giant kaiju as long as something like that happened and i got to see it on a big screen i didn't have any other i i had very low expectations i mean i love guillermo del toro and and he can write some very nuanced stuff but i i I understood that it was purely candy for my nine-year-old soul and that's all i went in expecting and i and i say that but it's like one of those things of being fans of a problematic uh piece of, of structure, which is that like, uh, what is the guy who makes uh, the Honest Previews? On, on Honest YouTube? Trailers. Honest Trailers just did a takedown of it that I think is absolutely pitch perfect and is utterly right. So I kind of have this like, divided personality about it. There's this inner core of me that has childish glee at, at finally seeing just someone throw tens of millions of dollars at animating two giant creatures beating the crap out of each other. And then there's another side of me that's kind of going like, well, I really wish that some aspects of it had been done better. But, you know, it's like Idris Elba and giant robots. And so it, <laughs> I, I could sit here and go in circles for like an hour about that movie. 
Yeah, well, the the one the one scene Toby where uh, the main character grabs Idris Elba by the arm, and Idris Elba says, "Don't touch me," and then he gives sort of a a, a little speech like that gave me chills. I mean that. <laughs> That was the one character moment I actually sort of woke up for a second and said, like, whoa, whoa, I'm, you know, I'm mm. suddenly engaged here. I wish there had been more of those. <laughs> Although it's criminal that you can have Idris Elba on screen and not utilize him to his fullest ability, because yeah. he did not get nearly as much screen time as he should have, because the main character that they chose, the I don't even know who that guy was, um, I'm like, they could have just swapped they could have made him the commander and Idris the the hero because I I anything to give him more screen time. I mean, come on, give us give us more of it, Idris. <laughs> I gotta tell you, if you're gonna have giant robots fighting giant monsters, at least have giant robots fighting giant monsters. Because I think that there was like one full out fight scene in the movie, and the movie was real long for, like, not a lot of fighting. And then, you know, I mean, Guillermo del Toro, it kind of broke my heart because all the crazy Orientalism going on in that movie, man. There, I yeah. was like, wow, dude. This, like, harkens back to something in, like, the 50s, you know. Even the, the just the, the weird kind of portrayals of, like, Asians. And it, it, was, it was a real kind of retrograde movie in that aspect. And I, I was kind of stunned by it. I wasn't expecting it, you know? And uh, it kind of went in line with the, the summer of Orientalism, you know, whether you're going from uh, Wolverine on down. And I guess I was, uh, Toby, I was just, even if my nine-year-old self, I just was hoping, like, dude, if you're going to line up a bunch of robots to fight a bunch of monsters, don't kill all the robots in one <laughs> second without them fighting. <laughs> Like, yo, fight it out, man. I just, I guess yeah. part of me was, I wanted, like, some fight, dude. I felt like I didn't get enough fight for my bang, man. I, I think Juno is exactly right in ter- uh, when he, when you said that, uh, Juno, when you said that uh, it was like a, it was sort of harkening back to the 50s. I think in a lot of ways it did, uh, not only in some of its attitudes, but also just sort of, like, in, in, in the whole tone of the movie. And I guess I was, I was sort of, I mean, obviously a movie that pits giant robots versus giant monsters kind of has a 50 sensibility about it, but I was kind of hoping for something that was going to have that feel, but, like, sort of transport that idea that, that kind of movie to the 21st century, but we didn't really get that. We got, we, we just got one, we got a, we got a 50s movie with updated special effects is all. I think what's interesting for me is the kind of shifts in generational stuff. And I think you guys know this and feel this is that, you know, cause I, I mess, you know, I, I teach students and what's fascinating is that a lot of the kids, um, when they think about robots fighting monsters, like we have that generational thing where we're thinking like Godzilla, you know, we're thinking Gamera, we're thinking Ultraman, but they're not thinking that, you know what I mean? They're thinking, they're thinking Robotech, they're thinking mm-hmm. Evangelion, like they grew up with a whole different set of texts that have set at a, an entirely different standard. Like a lot of my kids were like, went to see this movie and they're like, yo, this, we had more fighting in one episode of Evangelion. <laughs> so in their minds, in their minds, the bar is not. Godzilla, you know, in their minds, the bar is something else quite different, you know, and I think that that was interesting, too, in a way that it was a, I kind of was hoping when we're thinking about the update, also the acknowledgement that there was, there's these other traditions which are in circulation, which a lot of our youth are resonating to, man. 
Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned, I mean, uh, you mentioned James Cameron's Avatar, which in many ways was a throwback to an older style of storytelling, too. And I saw you talking about how it's problematic in the sense that this, this white guy comes in and kind of saves the, saves the day and dances leads, with Smurfs. <laughs> yeah, leads, leads the, <laughs> you know, the tribe to victory and so on. I was, and, and Toby mentioned, you know, well, Idris Elba should have been the hero of uh, mm. Pacific Rim. I was wondering, what if, what if Idris Elba had been the hero of Avatar? And they didn't change the script at all, but just that casting decision. What impact do you think that would have on the story? That's a good question. You know, I mean, I think that the there's always the, the larger question of the grammar of a narrative, right? In other words, so that let's say we have a the standard narrative of white male savior that is um, Elysium, that is Avatar, that is Dune, that is you know whatever. It's such a common you know. It's just a common story. Now, what happens if you throw, like, a white woman who is doing the saving, you know? I think that sort of sets up a whole whole series of questions and sort of depends on what in the world the context is. You know, with Avatar, um, you know, Avatar, it still was kind of a question where, you know, the question is, is this kind of thinly fictionalized indigenous group being saved? by someone who is identified with a kind of a Western techno society, you know, a techno culture. And so, I mean, just, you know, our boy, he certainly would have altered some of the racial dynamic to it, but I doubt, you know, again, I doubt whether if you want to take it to a historical perspective, I doubt that, you know, indigenous tribes who were being like pushed in the United States, and attacked and sort of savagely disenfranchised were sort of feeling that the black buffalo soldiers or any of the troops of color that were involved in this, they were thinking like, well, at least it's a person of color, <laughs> you know? So it all depends on the perspective. I think it would add well, something, but in a larger framework, it might add nothing. We're still talking about, you know, we still need to talk about like corporate power dynamics, colonialism, and those structures, not just the, color of the people that they're using to throw power down. Um, and that's actually the point that actually bugs me about uh, something like Avatar, as pretty as it is, and as much as I would want to root for James Cameron, uh, a movie like Avatar frustrates me because it, 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 it uses a sort of uh, metaphor or, or, what is, or sort of quote-unquote commonly known history about how these things go that is not very deep, doesn't scratch the surface of the crazy shit that actually went down uh, hundreds of years ago. And the more you read about that, the more complex and interesting and human and sad and bizarre and heartbreaking that entire history becomes. And that's one of the things that we keep talking about is just that these, uh, these, these stories aren't scratching deep enough. They're just doing a sort of quick layer, which is like, you know, here are these blue aliens who live in this sort of natural environment and, and are one with it. And here comes a evil mining company and here's the white hero who's going to save them and it it really uh, it's it's always more complex than that and that movie really didn't kind of scrape the surface for the sorts of uh contact scenarios that have happened in the past where you know you have some tribes people being sort of bought off and going to the other side and people defecting from the colonizing side to go over there and and the, the brutal force being used by weaponry and deceit and uh, 
misunderstandings and you know culture cultures as they kind of have friction and so it's like all of that to me as a as a novelist is interesting to explore because that's that's all conflict and conflict is always interesting for a writer because it enables you to sort of drive story so i think there's also that kind of the profound in a way there's a you know and i think this is this is tough that's why these are especially if you're you know if you're, when we're doing our work and we're sort of trying to engage people one of the things is that um people look people have a lot of built-in resistance to narratives that implicate them you know like and i think that the thing about these discussions is that these discussions part of the reason it's so much easier to be facile and sort of like kind of play the same chess move over and over again you know the same kind of it's almost a game of checkers like here's this story and here's how it's going to play out here's the the colonial pipe dream of contact yeah Mm. um it's because the other narratives are deeply troubling and implicate us in profound ways, you know, folks on every side of what this may have looked like. And I think that, you know, popular entertainment have rarely been very good at sort of, um, at one hand trying to titillate on the other hand, trying to fucking like, you know, um, bring you to, to open up a space of reflection and, uh, sort of deliberation on, what this means for our role in it. And, uh, yeah, no, I think that that's part of what makes sort of a textual work that asks you to invest weeks and months in reading is that you can sort of get into a relationship with someone where you can much more readily drag them into spaces, not drag, lead them into spaces, guide them, suggest Mm. spaces that are more troubling. And I think that that's one of the powers of the book uh, is this long-term engagement, which is really, in a, at a popular culture angle, it, it really is a form of seduction, but a form of seduction to get people away from their sort of, you know, banal ideologies and into a much more complex place. I think that's one of the really cool things about text, actually, is that it is is it gives us the ability to actually put someone in someone else's mind for an extended length of time. It's something that like TV or movies or anything else is actually unable to do really, because you're always on the outside looking in at the spectacle. And when you're writing, you're actually putting someone uh, behind someone else's eyeballs, which can be potentially transformative. And I think that's a really good point. All of that being said, I, I still actually value even small steps forward, even if they are sort of facile, because uh, after Avatar came out, for as much as I call it uh, Dances with Smurfs and knock on it sometimes, there was a protest uh, by a bunch of indigenous uh, uh, guys down in uh, South America, I think it was, that were protesting either their uh, their natural habitat being destroyed or a potential mining thing, um, or maybe it was the Palestinians on the West Bank. It was some sort of situation like that where all of these guys dressed up as avatar aliens uh, to do a peaceful protest. And it was just one of those moments where uh, they were able to sort of like uh, utilize that pop culture to sort of make an immediate connection and statement that like we are, we are the blue guys. Um, and this is, and what's happening here is that this company is doing the same thing. And so, I mean, even on a very simple metaphor level, even though I, I, I will knock the movie there, I still think that it's worth trying. 
And I, I will always take my hat off to anyone who even tries, even on a, on a small level, because I know there are many people who probably point to my own work and say I'm not going deep enough or that I'm too focused on action adventure or probably facile, um, because any, any amount of engagement is better than none. Yeah, and look, you guys know this as well. As anyone who works in a public school in this country, look, we are changing. This country has changed so fast. I almost feel like we're in Haldeman's um, Forever War, yeah, where the the world has changed so fast, but our literary cultures, even if it's generic, is lagging so far behind. You know, it's it's really really true. It's like literature and comic books and in a few other areas um, are so far behind in what's happening on the ground on what this country actually looks like and is. In some ways, it's strange, you know, because science fiction is, um, among its sort of uh, traditions, has always been sort of, uh, there's been some sort of future-looking, Futurian strains of it. But I certainly think that the, the kind of diversity that we are seeing in this country um, is still something that those of us who are imagining futures, those of us who are interested in futures, I think have yet to even grapple with the complexity of the the immediate present in any way that would make sense to someone in, say, a public school in Minneapolis. Mm. And that's one of the things that, for me, I think that there were what we're seeing now, the sort of incremental things, which I think are incredibly valuable. I think we're going to see across many of these areas, um, eventually we're going to see a an adjustment. Yeah a correction, a sea change, because right now the situation is absolutely abnormal. You know, I mean, it's absolutely abnormal when one looks at, say, the New York Times bestseller list for an entire year. Like, let's say last year, you look at the New York Times bestseller list for the entire year, every position in the New York Times entire year, and only one person in those 52 weeks, in those four lists, or five lists, and those 30 positions on each list, in that one year, only one person was a person of color. That's a incredible disconnect between the literary culture and the diversity that really comprises this country. And when I talk to uh, teachers and librarians, they're all asking me for recommendations of, of authors or books with uh, characters of color in them because, you know, they're, they've got such a diverse student population and one of the things the students are bouncing off of is just that there are no faces like theirs in fiction either from the author or uh from the the characters in the books and they're they're hungry for for it from what i hear god well look i remember my childhood growing up in the u.s look when i encountered starship troopers and i encountered this filipino american this filipino the hemispheric, we should say, because this mm. is not that America. You know, we get this Filipino diasporic character with a Spanish name as a protagonist in Starship Troopers. Literally, it was as if someone, you know, opened up a window into my brain. It had been, it was such an absence. I didn't even realize I was starving for it. It was such an absence. And I had that same reaction. <laughs> yeah, I think it's so many of us when we're so many of us can speak over the generations of what it meant to us when we 
finally started to encounter a little bit diversity that reflects on us. You know, it's, it's an important, I think it's an absolutely necessary and important, you know, um, something that has to really be tackled. And I think we're going to see a change sooner than later. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, speaking of students and the future, the next generation and stuff, I also saw on Facebook that you said that you're teaching a world building class. Could you talk about that? Oh, yeah. I have a world building class at MIT. At MIT, we have um, a comparative um, media studies department, which I'm a part of. And so I have students who are doing comic books. I have students who are doing video games. I have students who are doing film. And I have students who are doing textual stuff, who want to write short stories and novels. And the class that I kind of organized was a way to approach how do we create the kind of, or how do we understand strategies for creating the diegetic and hyperdiegetic space of the story, which is the complicated way of saying, how do we world build? Whether it's in a film, it's in a comic book, it's in a video game, you know, given the various affordances, it's basically world building for narrative media. And that's like a lot of fun because you basically get all the nerds from all the different mediums getting together and sort of having a crazy swap meet and how each of these mediums have these really excellent affordances that provide certain kinds of world buildings. And, you know, you get to swap out strategies and see texts. And it's, it's actually a kind of a crazy fun class because of the students. You know, last week we had this amazing comic strip from this young woman who wrote this remarkable script, wrote first issue, handed it into us, you know, and then we have other kids who are working on, you know, the sort of, they're looking at their seed bed for their computer game. So they're kind of like presenting the Bible for their computer game. And it's a lot of fun to be in that kind of uh, a, a little sandbox. Uh-huh. Uh, another thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, I came across a quote from you in Guernica magazine where you said, I love Tobias Bakel. He's new. He's great. He's got a couple books out. Really, really smarty pants. So, so now this is where I'll pay Dave a couple hundred <laughs> bucks. He and I go way, 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 way back. So, so Juno, uh, Dave was Dave was a classmate of mine at Clarion in 1999. That's how far back we go. So he's... <laughs> oh, man, you guys rolled deep. <laughs> you guys rolled deep, man. Nah, and John Joseph great. Adams was one of the first editors to ever buy a short story of mine. So, so these two, these, these, they're both my, they're, they're, they're both my boys, right? <laughs> Wait a minute, does this, does this explain the multiple appearances? Ah, <laughs> family. I, 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 I respect <laughs> and encourage family to stick together, man. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Have you guys read that new book that IO9 has uh, been talking about, Ancillary Justice? Yes. By Anne Leckie. Yeah, man. I'm like, I just finally got my hands on it, but haven't cracked it yet. You know, we're, we, we're, we're talking about what readers are starved for. And, you know, I think that uh, people are very excited uh, on Twitter. Lots of writers are writing, fan, you know, lots of writers and editors that I follow on Twitter are talking excitedly about it. Uh, and a lot of readers are starting to find it and spread the word. So I really hope it goes far because it is a... It is space opera, and it is good space opera, and it's hard SF space opera. You know, it's 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 in the vein of uh, an Alistair Reynolds or an Ian Banks, um, written uh, by a woman and with characters who you can't tell who the gender is, or the book spends a lot of time structurally dissuading you from spending time worrying about gender because it's not as important in the future. 
uh, thanks to you know science fiction. It's a really interesting uh, way of seeing if you can use science fiction to unpack the baggage of gender and does a very interesting job of it. And I think that so few books try to do something like that, that people are like sucking that up like a you know, dry sponge to water. So it's, it's quite an accomplishment. No, I'm really excited. You know, it's, it's good to have some new texts in. I, I don't know if you guys have been following, have you seen that TV show Orphan Black? Yes, yes, yes. I, I've, I've become a personal advocate of it. <laughs> yeah, oh that my gosh. Is, uh, talk about speculative fiction. Talk about science fiction, at least in the kind of, you know, the broadest sense. It's just that is just superb, man. That, that sort of like this book, Ancillary Justice, are things that get me really, really excited, you know? Yeah. It, it, I, Orphan Black is some of the best TV I've seen this year. It blew me away. And, and, uh, Tatiana Maslany is the actress, is, uh, very, very, very talented. Yeah, man. I, I have to tell you, that's one of the classes, that's one of the texts that we're teaching, that we're wrestling with in this world building class. But it's oh, really? one of the, yeah, man. It, yes, man. Because of just the way a whole series of conventions and sort of, you know, the trans generic tropes converge on that um, mm-hmm. series. But it's one of the few, I'm telling you, this is the one TV series that everybody who I tell it to, and I, you know, I have a lot of friends who we could say, quote unquote, are squares who don't do any genre stuff whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And this thing has united so many different of my groups of friends because I'll be like, listen, I know you only like the Red Sox, but watch this. <laughs> watch the two episodes. Watch two episodes and tell me what you think. And then I get a text message from them saying like, yo, I just lost my entire night. I watched the whole season. I mean, it's really just, it's really just clever, man. I watched the entire season in two nights. I couldn't stop myself. I literally could not stop myself. <laughs> and for those of us, you know, for people who are, who are interested in this kind of work, what's fascinating is how long it took this team to not only pitch it, but to get someone to pick it up. Yeah. And the things that we talk about when we're thinking about John, when we're thinking about science fiction is, you know, this thing that we began the conversation with is uh, about how, you know, you want to unpack world building because you want to really understand what are the implications in non-predictable ways. That's when you know world, you know, you've got good, you've got good, strong bones in your world building. When it asks questions about your premise, about your conceit, you know, mm-hmm. and it plays it out in unpredictable ways. And I think this thing takes its conceit, which we're not mentioning, and plays it out in ways that as a person who's, you know, you grow up watching a lot of this stuff, reading a lot of science fiction, you think you've seen the way this angle's played, and it just really surprised me. And I enjoy the energy that's produced by that kind of innovation. Yeah. Okay, so unfortunately it's 3.30, and so we have to let Juno go now. Um, just before I let you go, do you want to just tell us, do you have anything out that you want to mention? I saw that there's a deluxe edition of This Is How You Loser that's coming out. Ah, yeah. Now they just... they. they put this hardcover edition with illustrations from uh, Jaime Hernandez, who is one of the brothers Hernandez, who draw and write that seminal comic that I adore so much, Love and Rockets. And so, yeah, they put out this kind of super beautiful, it's, it's a completely an artifact. It's kind of this tactile, you know, hunk of gorgeousness that they put out. All right. So, uh, so Juno, I mean, we should let you go now, I guess, but it's been really, really great talking to you. I hope you'll come back again sometime. Yeah, guys, thanks so much, man. It's great to chat with you again, bro. Yeah, man, it's really great. Great to see you again. Well, virtually. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, man. And I, I'm sure we'll all be tuned in for the uh, the season premiere of um, of fucking Orphan Black. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm there. I'm there. Yo, thanks so much, man. All right? Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Jim. All right, man. Thanks, be man. safe. All right, bye. Ciao. All right, so that was our show. So big thanks again to Doug Dorst, Juno Diaz, and Tobias Bakel for joining us. And also a very special thank you to Michael King for becoming subscriber number 60. To see a list of all our subscribers, visit our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on subscribe. Also, if you're a longtime listener, please consider rating us on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you live in the New York area and want to meet up with me and other listeners, follow Geeks Guide NYC on Twitter. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.